Good afternoon. Welcome to another edition of Navara FM here on London's number one radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Mastani, at Aaron Mastani on Twitter. And today I have the immense pleasure, for which I'm so grateful, of being joined by, guess what, we got Michael Walker from The Fix, people, at Michael J. Walker. That's correct? That's correct. That is correct, right? And yeah. Marina Prentulis, at Marina Prentulis. What's your Twitter handle, Marina? Prentulis. It's just Prentulis? Yes. Oh, Actually, mine's J.S. Walker. Is I it? couldn't get J. Walker taken. Okay, Wait, so. do you know anybody else who's called Prentulis? Uh, I, I don't. I sometimes Apart from my it. father, but he doesn't Let's talk about Spain. I think, I, think, I, think, I think about Dave Prentice, but not Prentulis. Maybe, yeah, that's kind of like a uh, uh, Hellenification of the General Secretary of Unison. Notwithstanding that, welcome to the both of you. Buenas dias. Uh, I have the, better accent. Buenas dias. Well, we'll see. We're actually, look, I'll get to this in a second. We're going to be covering the Spanish elections, of which today's show is also going to uh, discuss. Michael's going to be over there. I'm going to be over there. A few of the Navarro team's going to be going over there. A trailer is coming up very shortly, actually, where people get to hear my outstanding Castilian accent. Okay, so today what we're we doing, we're discussing forthcoming elections in Spain, the rise of Podemos, and the prospects, if any, for a new government of the left with a fundamentally anti austerity politics. So those elections will be held on Sunday, the 26th of June. As I've already stated, Navarro Media will be out there. Michael will be making a longer documentary, I think, about the rise of Podemos, right? Uh, yep. And the tensions there within. Yeah. And I'll be uh, I'll be doing sort of like news videos. I'll be a, uh, the dream here is kind of Mason in Greece uh, in June last year. He's, I'll be here till the very end. So I'll, I'll be doing sort of I think daily videos, maybe twice daily videos, depending obviously on what happens. The big story, obviously, we're told, and I think it's broadly accurate, is that we're looking at the continued rise of Podemos, a party which to a significant extent emerged out of the 15M, the Kinsayam movement of 2011, and which has come to represent, in many ways, the new politics of both Europe and North America. On today's show, we'll be looking at Podemos and the possibility of them forming a government, if not this time around, then in the foreseeable future. In addition to that, we'll be talking about the continued pasoquification of Spain's historic party of social democracy, the PSOE, and why Spain, unlike England, France, Greece, and even Germany, isn't seeing the emergence of a populist movement of the far right, despite huge demographic changes since 1990 and a recession just as hard and traumatic as anything seen elsewhere in the Eurozone. So, question numero uno. Got people are really going to be subjected to my my uh, John Cleese Spanish. What is the most likely outcome next Sunday, Michael? Let's start with you. Uh, the most likely outcome, very unclear. Podemos look like they'll come second, or Unidos Podemos, which is Podemos plus Izquierda Unida, the United Left. I'm showing off my Spanish accent as well, there, Aaron. Um, <laughs> but uh, last last time the election was basically a stalemate. So the Partido Popular, popular party, which is the centre right, and Citizens, which is the new right wing party. Their seats combined didn't make a majority. Pessoe, the Socialist Party, and Podemos, their seats combined didn't make a majority. It looks like a similar thing could happen this time around. The difference now being that the Spanish population won't accept another stalemate. We can't really have a third election. Why wasn't there a grand coalition between the PSOE and the PP? So the PP is effectively the equivalent of the Tories and the PSOE is uh, the Labour Party. Do you want to respond to that, Marina? Why was there a coalition between these two big parties? It's your second bit that you mentioned, that I think PSOE knows very well that if they're going to make a grand coalition with Pepe, that will be their death. And I don't think Sanchez is that stupid. 
So this is why I don't think still that there will be this possibility of Pepe and PSOE coming together because it is as if you're committing suicide right. if you are PSOE. No, I, I mean, I agree with that. Well, that's why it didn't happen last time. Uh, I think there wasn't... having Redoing the elections was always a possibility, so PSOE were not going to sacrifice their role as the left party of Spain by allying with the PP. This time, that could happen, I think, because all the parties are having to prove how committed they are to forming a government. Everyone's pissed off that they've that we're having to have elections again. They don't want them in six months' time. I think this time round, Persoe could justify it. And that the two outcomes, really, in this election are either you have... Podemos are going to come second, which is what they always wanted. The PP will come first, and Persoe have to make a decision. Do we support Podemos in a government, which many of the... Barons within Pessoe are vitriolically opposed to, or do they form a, what do you call it, national unity government? National unity government yeah. with the PP, which, I mean, they're between a rock and a hard place, basically. Speaking of Pesocification, right? So yeah. people, some lessons we're going, what the hell are you talking about? Other lessons we're going, please stop saying Pesocification every show for the last three it, years. It, no, go on saying it, because I cannot even pronounce I it. I practiced it yesterday, ah, okay. the, You know, it's even there in Spanish. There's like yeah. some Spanish journals and stuff now go, Pasocofecacion. Very good. Wow. Eh? Dio? So, yes, this is precisely. So we say Pasocofecacion. What is that? Pasocofecacion. Centre left Greek party of historic Greek social democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, broadly had a similar trajectory, I guess, to PSOE, right? Because mm-hmm. we think of the, the high point of European social democracy in Britain and in France and in Scandinavian countries as immediately following the Second World War. But actually, because of the experience of fascism in countries like Greece and Spain, that was more so the case in the early 80s, mm-hmm. right? So what happened with PASOK is they were a bit like New Labour, emptied out. They, em- they entered into a coalition government, right, Marina? Yeah. They entered into a coalition government and they started going down, down, down. But the, I have a problem with this word that I cannot even pronounce, pasokification. How would you say in Greek? I cannot even pronounce yeah, okay. it in Greek, okay. in Greek actually. Okay. Okay. But the part is pasokia. Yeah? Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is for me that it's trying to put all these different parties in the same place. And it isn't the same. And I'll tell you why I'm saying that. Because they asked me at some point when um, we were discussing Syriza in Greece and what is happening with Pashok, they asked me, oh, do you think the Labour Party is going the same direction? And back then I said, no, I don't think it's the same because there is a very different historical context. The Labour Party is not the same. It's not organized in the same way. It doesn't have the same uh, conditions. And look, a few months after that, again, a hope for the left comes from a Labour Party because something changed and we have Corbyn and so on. So I think we have to be careful with terms like this difficult one and take in account the context of these parties. Absolutely. I just want to quickly add, I mean, the big one for me is uh, electoral systems, right? If you're talking about context. So Mm -hmm. clearly in systems where you have proportional representation, there are new parties of the left and in some instances, like with what we're seeing in Spain and in Greece, they take up the, what you call the historic block of social democracy parties, right? So in in Greece, uh, Syriza takes a lot of PASOK vote. And in Spain, what's happening at the moment seems to be Podemos taking lots of the PSOE's vote. In Britain, however, you've got an electoral system with very high costs of entry for new parties, same in the United States. So what we see instead 
is what you could almost ter- term third-party candidates, mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders in the United States, Jeremy Corbyn over here, and they almost parasitise what seemed to be, to all intents and purposes, dead uh, third-way you know, mm. centre-left parties. Michael, you want to respond to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's true in terms of the barriers to entry into the electoral system. I think at the same time, though, the, the extremity of Greece, why pacification... You say that it is a difficult word, I told you uh, so. You have to work for two series before you can ask that word. was so extreme was because PASOK were having to do the work of the Troika, right? So... In a sense, in America, they've got Bernie Sanders, but he didn't win. You know, he's, he's, he's a threat to Hillary Clinton, but we still have Hillary Clinton because there is room for manoeuvre to be, for Hillary Clinton to be slightly different to Republicans. Whereas in Greece, the room for manoeuvre between different parties, because everything was determined by an outside force, the ECB, meant that that process of pacification mm. was, was extreme, you know. And I think Spain, somewhere in between... Britain it, and it was also other things terms. in Greece, for example, that uh, that we would be subjected to the lending mechanisms. It happened in 2010, and the person who announced it, it was the president of PASOK, which was uh, George Papandreou, a person that it wasn't very liked by a big majority mm. of the people. Not not disliked, but seen a little bit as naive and stupid, and he didn't know what he Son was doing. Son of a doing. former prime minister himself, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, so he, he 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 didn't look competent enough and then it has to do also with a lot of fights that they were happening within PASOK and who was challenging uh, the leadership of George Papandreou who was another person Venizelos, have you seen him? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And and this is a hateful figure and a person that it would do anything, anything to stay and grab on power. Kind of like Peter Mandelson in this country, right? Yeah. So you have to take this in account as well, what is happening internally in mm-hmm. the parties, I think. As well. And give some credit to the radical left, where it's due. I mean, one of the reasons PASOK crumbled so dramatically mm-hmm. was because you had Syriza there as an alternative. Yeah. The same way Pessoa wouldn't be under threat of collapse if Podemos hadn't been quite so well organised and quite so able to take advantage but of that can, moment. Can I ask you something, both of you? Let's let's switch the roles, do uh, you mind? Uh, <laughs> uh, I believe, first of all, two things. One is that Podemos, they have already won because one of the things they managed to do is redefine the Spanish political space and pull PSOE towards centre, maybe mm-hmm. not as left as we would like, but pull them towards um, the centre-left. And I think this already is a big victory that we don't recognise, and we have to recognise that, because it's not only about elections. If you manage to redefine a political space, mm-hmm. you are already there, you are already um, leading. The other thing is that I think that Sanchez is not stupid. And he knows where he is, and he's very aware of what with, uh, what happened with countries uh, like Greece. And he did some very good things in Persoil, like throwing people out that they were related to cases of corruption mm-hmm. and so on. So it has to do with how he handled the whole situation as well. Also, I wouldn't say it's just influencing the, um, the PSOE. I mean, even the PP, right, uh, a couple of months ago, they said, you know, we are going to offer now a decisive break with austerity, mm. the Partido Popular. Mm. And so unlike, because of the the emergence of Podemos and 
the historical experience of what happened to the centre-right in Greece, the Partido Popular are going, well, obviously, we don't want to do the exact... Just like the PSOE don't want to follow that same trajectory, nor do the PP. And so you've got the prospect of the PP also tacking slightly left, or at least the centre, which does mean, right, that if we get a PSOE... PP possibility as a coalition mm-hmm. this time around. It could work and it may even be a bit more sustainable because the policies may be a bit different or at least they'd want it to be. The big problem is, of course, the ECB, mm. uh, Germany uh, and basically the European institutions will not let up on austerity, you know, especially for Southern Europe. This has been tried. I mean, I, I mentioned this in a piece I wrote a couple of weeks ago. This is, you know, one of my big um, arguments for Brexit, which I've changed my mind on, of course. Thank you for that, Aaron. <laughs> One of my big, well, I mean, wow, it's just to, it's totally untenable now, obviously. But one of the big arguments I was saying was uh, the people you're dealing with are fanatics, right? So uh, early this year, Matteo Renzi said to the Germans, let's do a deal on migration. Uh, let's have what we'd call migrant bonds. Let's have uh, remuneration for countries taking in lots of these migrants, basically Greece and Italy, right? Mm-hmm. Ease up on fiscal policy. We'll create more legal channels for these people. You don't have to deal with them so much. Politically, that's great for the North because your electorates are getting really, especially for the Christian Democrats in Germany, your electorates are getting really aggravated about immigration and we need to tell our people we've got an offer on jobs growth and the economy. This is obviously the correct thing to do and Merkel says, no, thank you, Stonewall's Mm -hmm. Renzi. So we're dealing with fanatics here and I think that's the big thing that any PPPSOE coalition has to deal with, right, is that... The dynamics of Europe and European elites right now are so uh, immovable mm. that it would be a matter of time before that coalition saw big problems, wouldn't it? Well, that's what at least that's, that's going to be Podemos's wager, surely. Uh, yeah, that'll be Podemos's. What about the PP Pesoe coalition? That they can only move so far left because. You well, like, I don't think we're expecting them to move very no, far. Even, left, if, to be even if they wanted to, coalition. there are bigger forces at work than just the domestic political scene, right? But, but the problem, as you say, it will, they, they will have to face them even if it's Pessoa and Podemos coalition. It's mm-hmm. not that the rest exactly. of the European elites they are going to lay down and as take su- it. As Syriza found out, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and you ha- we have to remember that, that when we are talking about the liberal forces in Europe, they've been uh, winning power and consolidating their powers for 30 years. Mm. And they didn't have any challenge. So they're not going to give up, even if you have Pessoa and uh, Podemos coalition. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's... I was at a talk with Pablo Bustindoy the other day, who's the head of international relations. And that relationship with ECB is really central to Podemos' strategy. They're hoping... Obviously, everyone's question for this guy is, is it not going to go the same way as Syriza? <laughs> Sounds very similar. Their, their answer is, one, Spain's bigger than Greece, so mm-hmm. they will have... a bigger chip to play with, more bargaining power. At the same time, he kept talking about timing. So he was saying, whereas with Syriza, they expected France or Italy to potentially come to their aid. He had an analysis that Italy and France now are themselves in a more severe situation than they were last year. So he's saying Renzi's close to breaking point, oh, yeah. Hollande is close to breaking point. Yeah. If someone can offer no. them a way out. I of... think Hollande broke a long time ago, actually. I, th- I think there is something else that it came out, I was writing about that, from the Greek negotiations, yeah. which is that I think Syriza went in with a naive idea that, okay, they will try to keep it together in unity, so we have a negotiating card. But in the process, you saw people like Soible saying, no, please, if, if you want to go, you mm. could stay in this position. And you saw that there is 
is another plan, which means that there were a plan like people like Schäuble have that they would like to divide it in a core and a periphery. For mm-hmm. me, periphery means neo, uh, neocolonization, effectively. But there are uh, that's what the Greek situation shows that there are alternative plans. They have become visible, and now in the Spanish situation, all these forces they have to take them in account. Mm. Somebody's phone is going. Oh, it's mine. Is it? Terrible. It's James Butler at Bisman. I'm joking. (laughs) James isn't with us today, Sally. Just come back from Sicily of all places. Um, So I'll move on to my second question. How far away are Podemos from power and what is their likely path to government? I mean, we've already touched upon that briefly, but we've talked about the limits of what they would face if they were in power. What's their likely path to power? Let's start with you, uh, Marina. I think, first of all, if we put PSOE, the projections that we have in terms of seats now, correct me if I'm wrong, and uh, Podemos together, they are not going to have a majority still. I mean, mm-hmm. so it's it's still a difficult situation and you have to bring in uh, smaller parties. And in the previous round, there was a problem there with uh, the referendum in Catalonia. Mm-hmm. So where they couldn't find uh, an agreement, PSOE and um, Podemos, is because Podemos said, okay, we should have a referendum in Catalonia. PSOE said, um, no. This is the red line. Yeah, that was the red line. Then the red line shifted, and I think at some point, PSOE, not PSOE, Podemos, said, okay, it's not a red line anymore. And in the process, it became a red line again. So, again, it wasn't uh, very clear what it was happening. And I think Izquierda Unida at that point, they, they wanted to have um, an alliance against uh, austerity. So, for me, this change that now Podemos are with Izquierda Unida, mm. it's, it's a very positive um, positive step. Mm-hmm. I'm always for unity and bringing the left together, mm-hmm. obviously. So I think still we don't know, for me, I mean, uh, I don't know how this is going to play out. I still hope that there will be a way for PSOE and um, Izquierda Unida Podemos to come together with smaller parties and have a coalition of that type. But I think possibly this is, well, I think this is quite difficult as well. I think Podemos are in a very good situation. They're in the situation they've always wanted to be in, basically, which is they'll either be in government this year, supported by PSOE, they'll win, so Pablo Iglesias would be mm-hmm. president of Spain, or there's a grand coalition between PSOE and the PP and Podemos win in four years' time. Yeah. So I, they're, they're pretty confident that in the next four years we'll see Podemos in I, government Can in I Spain. tell you my problem with the second scenario, however? Because I'm Greek and because I'm looking at the European Union and we have the situation here as well, four-year times, for me, it starts to feel too long down the road. Mm. I mean, Podemos have only been a player since 2014, right? Mm. Yeah. So to speak in those frames seems perhaps... uh, I agree with you. I'm not saying you're being myopic, but it's perfectly possible that history... uh, History interjects and ruins plans, doesn't it? Oh, God, yeah, no, I mean, that's not certain. But they seem pretty confident. And that, to be honest, if you were going to put money on it, I'd say, yeah, Podemos in government either this summer or in the next four years. Probably most likely in four years' time. So this is the recent polling. Poll released last Thursday by the state-run Centre for Sociological Research saw Podemos Unidos increasing their total seats to between 88 and 92. Mm -hmm. That's up from the current 71, while the PSOE drops to 78 from 90. Um, 
PP still the largest party. If but then I think they increased their share, didn't they? This is last Thursday. What, so what did they, what did they, eight, eight days ago. Yeah, but compared to where they were in the previous election, Pepe, I think, has increased a little bit their uh, share. Oh, yes, no, they have, yeah, yeah. Um, the projection is that the PP would still be the largest party. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the possibility of Podemos finishing above the PP? Non-existent? Uh, I think so. I mean, no, no one really seems to be suggesting Podemos could could finish above. Because you get this bonus, don't you? That's the Spanish system. You, if you finish top, you get like, no, no, that's uh, Greece. That's Greece. Oh, you don't get that. No, it's kind of like an additional. No, There's the the, no. the the system ad- advantages larger parties in that you have. I can't remember what you call that electoral system. Is it additional member you, system? It's not additional member. No, you oh, elect each. Go on Wikipedia. Each, go on. each region. <laughs> each region elects a certain amount of. Uh, d- deputies or yeah. MPs. Yeah. So if you're a small party and you don't get above a certain limit, you don't get, even if you've got a, a large nationwide support base, yeah. you don't get any MPs in, in these areas. So that's what, that re- that's what really messed up the United Left Party last, last right. Right. Um, time round. And that's why this alliance between Podemos and United Left really changes the game, because them together as a larger party... The electoral system favours them, but there's no bonus. It's not. It doesn't function as a bonus. By the way, we were saying about um, different electoral context and, you know, pacification and differences between countries with particular electoral systems and more first past the post systems. Britain, what happens? Right, we do have pacification of a centre left party, mm. but it's only in Scotland. Okay, now why is that? And it's kind of backs up my hypothesis generally, is that you have Holyrood elections, you have Scottish Parliament elections, and that in 2000, and I don't know when the last one was, 2000, the big breakthrough was like 2009, I think, because they became like a, mm. a viable contender for power, I guess. I might be wrong. Um, but basically after 2010, the SNP clearly on an upward, uh, upward swing. Yeah. And why is that? It's because you have an independent um, legislative body, which is voted through a much more representative <clears throat> electoral system than what we have for Westminster elections. Mm. And that was what offered them a springboard then for first the independence referendum and then, of course, last May's general election. Um, so I think the pacification sort of hypothesis is a good one. Why hasn't that happened in, in, in Catalonia? So it seems like the Catalan debate is, if anything, empowering the rise of Podemos uh, is it or is it why isn't it switched off from this whole because basically Labour is saying under Corbyn why can't we win back Spain um Scotland <laughs> imagine that's fair Gibraltar <laughs> why can't we win back Scotland right and it's pretty obvious that they they're not going to be able to do that mm. and yet Podemos seem to be and Catalans want secession more than ever before and Podemos are I know they're not winning it it's a different mm. d- different parties but there's a there's effectively a natural coalition between them which is of a very different genre to anything we could ever plausibly. Imagine between the SNP and Labour. It it is an uncomfortable coalition, I think, as well, because I th- I think deep down somewhere, Podemos <clears throat> are for unity, but they will need to be in good terms with uh, Catalonia. And mm. the argument in Catalonia, it's not always the most progressive one. So there is a big, well, not everybody. I mean, there is a part there which is arguing that why should we pay for all this poor um, Spanish South? as well. So I, I think it's a very um, difficult uh, situation there and not a very comfortable one. I think Podemos have done very well at sort of uniting forces. There's, there's, it's not just Catalonia, there's also Galicia, Pais Basco, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Basque Country. Well, I mean, Cat- Catalonia's the big one, right? Catalonia's the big one. third of the economy or something. Yeah, 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 and, and they really want a referendum. Yeah. <laughs> but they, in, in the regional elections, actually, Podemos got squeezed. They didn't do that well because they got squeezed by the 
independentist parties on the left and the independentist parties on the right. But it's in these national elections where it looks like they can do quite well because they really are the only route to a referendum on Catalonian independence, and everyone knows that. They were also helped massively by Ada Calau in, in Catalonia specifically. So she became... She was... She started La Paz, which was the, the brilliant anti-eviction movement, and she's now mayor of Barcelona. And she's constantly on tour with Pablo Iglesias doing the whole election campaign. So she's a real strong leader there. And that's... Podemos is... Podemos doesn't stand as Podemos in Barcelona. They stand as Podem en Comú. Podemos some people are saying she'll be the first Podemos prime minister, not Iglesias. Some people are saying... And it, not this yeah. time round, obviously, mm. but... I, I don't think Podemos are going to be any, in any rush to... Uh, get rid of Pablo Iglesias sure. because he's he is an incredibly competent politician. I don't think it, it can really be overstated the extent to which like the success of Podemos has been down to the competence, the sort of the the, the skills, the capacity. If you see him on TV, it is like. But some next people level. now, you know, for me, I don't care how you do it, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't care how the left, you know, can get into. Um, now, clearly, I believe in an interplay between social movements, political mm. parties. I don't, you know, I think change comes about through the sort of dynamic, um, adaptive nature of one and the other. Mm. Uh, somebody like James, I'm not going to sort of uh, ventriloquise what he would say, but he was saying a couple of years ago, we were both saying in, in fairness, or a year ago even, Podemos have moved away from the radical democratic nature of the... Uh, they were never about that. The 15M movement. But that was the original pitch, wasn't it? That we are the electoral expression of this movement. And that right... Hold on, let me finish. Right <laughs> before the last election, um, they basically... Even their branding was more about Pablo Iglesias than about the party itself. Do you think that has problems in terms uh, of... Oh, God, yeah, it's, it's full of problems. But I, I feel like there is... There's a certain vision that we have in the UK of Podemos. I think in a way we learnt not the wrong lessons in that we should be doing exactly what they've done, but we thought Podemos got really, really uh, successful by growing out of a horizontal movement Consensus. and doing, yeah, doing politics <laughs> consensually. But Podemos' first election, it, wasn't, it didn't become the Pablo show. The first election Podemos stood in, which was the European elections mm. in 2014, the logo on the voting slip was Pablo Iglesias' face. Mm. That's never happened in Spain, not with any other party, right? Mm. So... And although Podemos talk a lot about the Kinsayami movement, the Indignados movement, what they say is this opened up a moment of political opportunity. This opened up discourse in Spain. So in a book that Carlos del Clos wrote, he says quite a nice thing about it, which was that these, these horizontalist movements weren't seen as the, the beginning of a, a party that could take power or the beginning of a movement that could take power but they were sort of an experimental hotbed for discourse so you see what's being said in the squares how are people talking to each other what are the desires that people have for change and then you instrumentalize those discourses in a leninist party it is not exactly like that and there is a difference also how this happened between uh, podemos and syriza of course and i think Podemos still have quite a strong base, which maybe, well, compare, I compare it with the Greek case that um, 
This is not necessarily the case. But I think this this move from movements, mm. from horizontality and what was happening there to parties, it's not a straightforward one. I mean, people sometimes assume that you go from one to the other, but in the process, all sorts of changes happen. And I think for me, after the experience of Greece, the bet is if you can go back as a party in power or closed power and reinforce uh, these movements. In the case of uh, Syriza, that wasn't the case. The part it wasn't... And it doesn't have to do with being in Europe or not or Brexit and things like that, but it also has to do with how the party was organized and not allowing um, diverse opinions coexisting in there. <clears throat> Hence this break by the left after the... Uh, Capitulation, effectively, on the yeah, third bailout deal last But I tell you what, I, I don't worry about so much about the left that uh, went and formed another party mm. because the differences there are, were big. Um, they And these were not the people that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people in moral centre and more people who had to do with movements that mm. also they left and they didn't join any other party. They went back to their sofas because they don't feel mm. that there is space to engage again. So I think it is very important to emphasize in parties that they go for power like Podemos and Syriza and populist. I, I would call them populist left. I don't know if, if you agree with the term. They'd call themselves populist left. The left, I don't know. It may have come in the brand now with Izquierda Unida, but they were trying to bypass it. They're happy to call themselves left populist because it distinguishes them from right populist. <laughs> yeah, although... Although I think that when you see, because you were reading this book, weren't you? This uh, book with uh, Chantal Mouffe and uh, Two chapters I've read. There is a, <laughs> there, a book review from a while. Marina's read the whole thing. So she <laughs> uh, there was an interesting thing quite there because Erehon was saying that he takes his experience from uh, and his understanding of politics and populism from the Latin American experience. Mm. Uh, which but, is collapsing right now. Which is collapsing and Look it's not Brazil. going well yeah. and we should worry about that quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but uh, yeah, let me, uh, uh, but what he was, I think, what he couldn't say is that in Europe we have to fight the equivalent uh, right-wing populism, which it may not have been the case as populism in Latin America, and this is a big difference. Why I don't think the uh, Latin American experience can be transported. I want to answer that. I want to answer that absolutely. I and mean, this is the thing that I think a lot of the the horizontal left in the UK forgets is that working class conservatism in Britain, I think I said this two shows ago actually mm. with Jeremy Gill, but working class conservatism goes back a long time, goes back to the 1860s, Second Reform Act, I believe, 1867, I may be wrong. Disraeli expands the franchise. It's a Tory that does it. It's not a Whig. This is actually unique in the context of 19th century Europe. Why does he do it? Because they understand Britain is an imperial power can buy off large swathes of the working class, both materially and ideologically, through narratives of superiority. Guess what? And this is Machiavelli, right? Mm -hmm. Machiavelli does a whole chapter on, on empire in the discourses of Livy. He says, you have an empire, excuse me, <clears throat> you have an empire so that the desires and ambitions of your domestic citizens can be imposed on the other. You don't have discord in the, in the polis internally, because that goes elsewhere, those desires. That's kind of what Britain does in the 19th century. I think it's the basis of working class conservatism. Um, and I think you're right, that's not really there in, in the history of Latin America. Their mm -hmm. independent, independence struggles, I mean, the populism that is reasserted 
20 years ago. Look at Chavez, Chavismo, um, Simon de Bolivar. These were cross-class movements, anti-imperialist movements of their nature because these were colonies. Europe is very different. Europe was the colonizer. So it's a fundamentally different... And by the way, nothing can ameliorate class distinctions within a struggle than the colonizer. So... God, excuse me. This is such a great point. So I'm going to have to cough. Excuse mm. me. <clears throat> I'll get a glass of water. You guys can carry on in a second. Our, Ireland, right? The two historic political parties of Ireland, um, uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, both anti-British parties. So the class antagonism was elided in Irish domestic politics for so long, right? Ditto in Iceland. <clears throat> one party of government, basically from 1930 until now, until the crisis, the, 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 the independence party. Mm-hmm. So... Class antagonism is, antagonism is very easily allied in anti-colonial discourses, and that's what informs, I think, Latin American mm. progressive politics the last 20, 30 years. We don't have that over here, and I think it's a big mistake not to realise that. Yeah, I think that, that's why I was telling you that this experience can, cannot be transported with, within the European Union. Uh, but also, the difficulties that we have, and uh, for me this is where we should be working for, towards uniting these left populist mm. um, parties and forces within the European Union. And there is a big difficulty there if you think that the enemy, what we are fighting against, neoliberalism, austerity, is an internal enemy. And within the EU, the different lines that you have, the different frontiers that they are creating are shifting. So in the Greek case, for example, with the negotiations, you, the enemy, let's say, you could say, okay, it is neoliberalism, but it needed a face. And Merkel's face and Schäuble's face was a very good face. Mm-hmm. And then it shifts with the refugee crisis. And then Germany is the one which says, okay, let's open and take some refugees. And then you have another grouping, Austria and others blocking and uh, mm-hmm. creating fences and blocking the Balkan route. So we have different um, situations and context, and I agree totally with you, Aaron. And also we have different difficulties in if we want to uh, do progressive politics um, within the European Union, which I'm favoring, let's go, let's do it. But there are difficulties as well. Yeah, I think there's... I mean, I think the situation in Spain is different to the situation in the UK as well. I mean, so the progressive patriotism as they like to call it or what they always talk about is a national popular movement that's what they learned from latin america they, they they went to latin america they saw there's this national popular movement which brings together indigenous people which brings together the working class against corrupt elites who are in cahoots with america so and spain are go- going for a similar thing which is unite the social majority which is what they always say as well we're, we're for the social majority against corrupt spanish elites in cahoots with um, the ECB and elites in the European Union and international finance more generally. And I think also it's there's a certain coherence to that as well in terms of a national popular movement, which is to assert the democratic control over the economy vis-a-vis or, and taking back that control from international finance. So a, a huge part of Podemos' programme is, is to regulate finance to say we we want to reassert democratic control over the spanish economy to do that we need to rein in 
international finance. And it makes sense in that context to have a national popular movement. But again, there is a problem there. So when Erehon, Erehon was in the Political Studies uh, Association conference and he was talking about the national popular and a lot of us that we were academics but also members of Syriza, we, we were not comfortable with this discussion because he said at that point, which was a few months ago, very little about the European Union. So where we put the emphasis on we have to challenge the balance of forces within the European Union if we want to bring change, there it wasn't enough in his discourse. Uh, well, I'm sure they are in favour of the same process. It, it was a matter, I think, of where the emphasis is. But for us, the emphasis is you have to challenge the balance of forces within the European Union and, and change that. You don't look happy. I mean, you know, sometimes do a hashtag called Ask Navara. And maybe on one Ask Navara, somebody say, Aaron, why do you cough on the show sometimes? Because I don't often cough. And I think it's down to the brand of green tea I have before we do the show. I think I finally realised it. That's it. Anyway. So green tea makes you cough. Green tea, well, you know, it's, it's good for keeping away Alzheimer's. It has something called L-theanine, which is an amino acid, essential amino acid, so you can't produce it yourself, which makes you very calm. Um, it's good for your teeth. Uh, it's very good for memory. So it has lots of upsides. One downside is don't do live radio with it. Because <laughs> you'll cough a lot because it gives you a dry throat, seemingly. Anyway, we've got just under 25 minutes left. You're listening to Navarra FM here on London's coolest, most fantastic, most vibrant radio station. It's not rinse. We're talking about Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, yes, lots of food for thought. I just want to quickly offer an anecdote. I was giving a, a speech. I was, gonna, I was at a conference in Denmark. In yeah, 20- you were giving a speech. Yeah, I <laughs> At a rally. No, it was a conference in Denmark. And it was the high, you know, the sort of the, the, the great and the good of Danish, sort of the Danish left, former central bank governor, all sorts. This for my academic stuff, nothing to do with Navarra. And there was loads of indignados. And so everybody was like doing all their conferences and their panels, and like the Brits were there, like all fussed together. Oh God, fascism was probably on the rise. And then you know, all the Spaniards were like tanned, mm. sort of like shorts, flip flops, you know, like the t-shirts with the sleeves missing and stuff. And they were turning their seats around, like in friends or something. And they were forming circles. And it was like, oh, these guys are really cool. And then one of the guys who I met was a guy called Remundo Vieno Viejas. Okay. Now this guy is now councilman for Barcelona. He's on the cabinet for Barcelona. He's basically like the, sort of the executive governing body of Barcelona. This guy was an academic. He'd left Galicia, moved to, to, to Switzerland. Galician guy. And he was kind of underemployed, like really precarious. And he looked kind of like a bit messy, a bit shabby. If you're, Ramundo, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I'm not being like negative. But it was like a real, you know, uh, bohemian, right? Mm. And um, he gave me some great quotes for my PhD. And then I'm watching the results for the Barcelona election come in last May. And he goes, Raimundo, you have any... And I'm like, this, guy, this guy's now one of the people in charge of Barcelona. Like the most, 11 most powerful people mm. in Barcelona. So, and this guy was like couch surfing, basically like two years before. And I thought when I was speaking to him, I've got a quote in my PhD. And he goes, the 15M isn't a social movement. It's a move to sociality. And I thought, these people, man, so full of garbage. And then... <laughs> The guy's in power, so maybe he's got something worth listening to. That point you made about the social majority, about a national majority, which in Britain would be quite a concerning mm. 
pair, pair yeah, of words. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I need to be careful. I'm not suggesting we start a national popular movement in, it, in the it's, UK. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not up to you. It's not that you're yeah. going to decide what it's going to happen. Michael Walker, the less for us. <laughs> anyway, um, and we've seen Iglesias in you know these. There's a kind of um, countercultural alternative to the Spain football shirt, which is of mm-hmm. course the colours of the royal flag, and it's the colours of the republican flag. It's mm-hmm. it's purple, yellow, and red. He's worn that. Uh, Spain, in a number of ways, is quite similar to Britain, you could argue it's got a monarchy. Um, it's got problems with regional independence movements, issues with regional independence movements. Yet we've seen huge attitudinal change towards, towards the monarchy over the last five years. We've seen the emergence of a new left party. What's more, it, it's got more... Let me get the data up on this. Immigrants' percentage of national population in Spain is 14%. This for a country which had next to no immigrants in 1990. Mm-hmm. So... Monarchy, quite a, a historically takeaway Catalonia, Castile in any case, historically conservative society. Yet it seems to me Podemos are reclaiming a certain idea of Spain, mm-hmm. and it's being tied in with a, a progressive project. Now people presume that's impossible in England. Mm-hmm. I, well, it's happening on the other side, right? You mean? And I'm in, I'm inclined to agree with that. But people like, for instance, Anthony Barnett or Jeremy Gilbert, Jeremy Gilbert says, yes, I also think it's unlikely, Mm. but I also think it's the only frame by which you could challenge a lot of Mm. commonplaces in England. If Scotland leaves, what else are you going to do? Are you going to say everybody's a fascist and cry your eyes out? Yes, it's a myth. Yes, it's completely made up, but that's probably the only alternative. What do you what do you guys think about that? I'll start with you, Marina, in terms of what lessons can the English left learn from this kind of project or as a result of our colonial past, is it simply impossible to have an alternative English politics? I think we have to understand what we mean with left populism, that it can go both ways, that it happens in particular context. And I think in Britain you have right now and around the situation of the referendum, what we see is the rise of a popular right. Farage, I find Farage very um, dangerous because he takes... Uh, constituencies that they were supposed to be labor, Mm. working class and so on. So uh, I think you have to see the particular conditions and right now I think in Britain is the popular right. Now in, in order to create a popular left a lot of things have to happen. I don't think it's impossible but you... In Britain or England? Ah, yeah, well, you see, I'm still thinking in terms of um, of Britain. Okay, and, yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'll, until Scotland leaves you and we are left in the little English story island, I'm thinking Britain. Okay. Th- this is my nightmare, by the way. You do realise that, yeah? Not only your nightmare, but yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I don't, I don't think it's going to happen uh, anytime soon. Do you think that, though, a uh, left... Popul- English left-wing populism yeah. is possible. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. My, my, well, I, I how... support. The thing is, I support Scottish independence. If a majority of Scots want independence, no problem for me. Okay, and that then creates an issue that if you've got a country, uh, Scottish independence would al- almost certainly mean Northern Ireland would have greater devolution. You'd have England and Wales, but let's just say England. Um, that would create a problem of England outside, let's say, the EU potentially. And as what mobilising frames would you have for aggressive politics? And now I don't yeah. agree with civic nationalism as an idea, mm-hmm. 
But I mean, neither does Jeremy Gilbert. But he's saying, I think, I, yeah. I think it's probably a decent idea. Try it, test it out. That doesn't mean you go the full Monty and start kidding yourself. Mm. But also, you don't seed. I think at the very least, you don't seed whole swathes of history, all right, of Englishness, as a thing, and say you know X, Y, Z. And I, I, it it can be a lot more expansive, uh, I think, than people realise. Because even England is, you know, it's historically a multi-ethnic uh, community. It, it just if you even look at um, in terms of the Dane law, in terms of the Kingdom of Wessex, if you look at Roman Britain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I mean, it's I mean, it's it's there's no reason why it couldn't work. Um, it's not an ethnically, quote-unquote, that doesn't even exist, by the way, homogenous society. It's not Japan. It's not Iceland. It's not um, It's not some of the Scandinavian countries until 20 years ago. I, I think I have a resistance. And it's got several nations, sorry. And it's got several nations anyway. Uh, Cornish nationalism, Welsh nationalism. I mean, there's the alternative. For, I think there's a possibility of an alternative. I don't think it's very likely. But I, I think... What else would you have? No, but the, the moment you start explaining how you see it, I see how much resistance I have to this idea. Whenever there is some sense of nationalism, mm-hmm. I freak out, you know, totally. And for me, and this, uh, I'm bringing it back to the referendum. Uh, it has to do with why always when I'm thinking of that, I'm thinking transnationally, what potentials there for cooperation and stuff like that. I have an inherent resistance to the idea. No, I totally I mean, if I was to ever back a project like that, like, in, like I don't, you wouldn't even need to say English nationalism. It's a political project which does not cede the community mm-hmm. of the nation, not the nation state, to the right. It doesn't just let go of it. How would you do that? You would say, look, this country's done some incredible things historically. The people, you wouldn't say the English, said the people of the, this island have done some incredible things, which, you know, lots of people would agree with, right? Um, industrial revolution, amazing cultural history. You, yada, have, yada. you have to reclaim that. It's the only country I know that the radical history that it had, yeah. is, it has been the last, I so don't know it. how many, totally wiped yeah. out. So you, you do all that, but I think attendant with that, you also have to say, you'd have to do almost like a German process post-45, right? You would have to, and this is the problem, uh, lots of people would buy into that. Problem is, you also have to issue, address the issue of empire, I think, massively. And you have to, the, the break with Britain would come by saying, Britain's over, Britain's dead, you'd have a federalised England, and you know what? Its politics cannot be more different, and we're going to deal with the legacy of colonialism in a very material way. Not just apologise, you'd probably have to give remittances, scholarships, to be, you know, mm. some kind of economic measures to sort of uh, deal with that, those historic injustices. I mean, if you look at. I'm not advancing this argument, by the way, and I probably wouldn't be anyway for a couple of years. Because, you know, but that's the argument they would say. If you look at um, Peasants' Revolt, 1381, these these people, these radicals, were coming from Essex and Kent. Now, these are the most reactionary places in the country right I now. I told you I went to Barking. It do, was it Barking? No, no, no. Epping, Epping. Epping. That's nearly. Is, is it in Kent? Epping. I think it's still in London, though, isn't it? Technically. Oh, they told me that it's Essex. Well, I Essex. thought it's in oh, London it's in because it's no, the no, it's end of the yeah, central yeah. line. Yeah, yeah. But it's Essex, and yeah. I freaked out totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Man, yeah. very conservative, very, very, very. Oh yeah. I mean, the home. This is the problem. I think Labour make when they talk about England. They think that the home counties are England, so they go to Essex and Kent. And they think, oh yeah, there's St George's crosses everywhere, and but it's not like that, at least not to the same extent, in Yorkshire, in Dorset, in uh, I don't know Herefordshire or something. It just isn't right. Mm. There's a real critical mass of that stuff and those ideas in the South East, like there really doesn't exist in the rest of the country. Anyway, we've got just under 15 minutes left. Your thoughts? Why did the far right 
not emerge in Spain like it has over here, despite all these variables, Michael? Um, what variables are we talking about now? High unemployment. 25, I mean, you've got 45% youth unemployment. High of immigration. 45% youth unemployment in Spain. I think it's like 20% unemployment now, still. Um, huge demographic change in the country. Mm-hmm. A lot more migrants, brown and black people than there were 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yet, unlike all these other countries, no far right. What explains that? Well, again, we could give some credit to the radical left. I mean, Podemos or Inigo Arejón, for, for sure, Chantal Mouffe argues the same thing, which is that the only thing which can defeat right-wing populism, or not necessarily defeat, but prevent right-wing populism, is a left-wing populism. So you're in this moment, and, and it, it seems reasonable if you look across Europe, we're in this moment of where the centre is crumbling and popular movements are going to arise. There's a gap. There's a gap for an anti-establishment party. And to some extent, I mean, it's, not, it's obviously not totally this, to some extent, it's who best fills that gap. And that's partly to do with the structural conditions of that country. Is it more? Is there a tendency towards right-wing politics or a tendency towards left-wing politics? But it's partly going to be about how well each, how well each movement can capture that moment. Is it a right-wing movement that captures that moment or a left-wing movement that captures that moment? At, this, at the same time, I was looking at some of the structural reasons yesterday for why... Spain hasn't lurched towards anti-migrant politics. So some of the things that came up were a history of emigration. So since the 50s and 60s, Spanish people have emigrated a lot to the rest of Europe. Spain was relatively poor under Franco compared to the rest of Europe, so emigration was common. It's still very common now. Most, most, Many young people, people our age, are sort of expected to go abroad and find work at some point in their life. So there's... Pro- potentially less of an extent to which the migrant is seen as the other. People can see migration as something that happens to themselves, not just other people, which I think is more the case in Britain. I mean, we don't even call people migrants when they're British. We call them expats, whereas in Spanish... Which they, is ridiculous, I have it, to it, say. It, obviously, it's ridiculous, but in, in Spain, in, in Podemos' uh, what's it called? Manifesto, which I was looking at yesterday, they had a proposal which was to attract Spanish emigrants back to Spain. Not with a weird advertising programme, as in sort of like we'll make Spain a place that people actually want to live, because they always talk about... Make Spain great again. Not make Spain great again, but they talk about what they're trying to mobilise, I think, is this, this, the extent to which the current government have failed Spain's young people we could do by something, 50% unemployment. We could do and something so, similar, right? If we were to get all these people back off the Costa del Sol, we'd be like, look, we're going to create dozens of Eden projects... And it's going to be like 40 degrees C and we'll have all these golf courses. You can come back and... Anyway, I'm joking. We don't want them back, really. But in the manifesto, we wouldn't call them migrants. We call them way, expats. Yeah. So that's, that's, there's that difference. Michael, did you look at the manifesto, which is like the IKEA, the Ikea catalog? catalog I, yeah. I, I think it's a fantastic idea. Did yeah. you see yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the one, right? Um, the one you're re- referring to. Well, it's in that manifesto. I mean, oh. they've, they've written the manifesto in many forms. Oh. I was on the website. All right. I but I, but, but I really like this idea that That's it is cool. so accessible and it's like, yeah. What are your thoughts about, because you've, you've even seen Golden Dawn, third largest party in Greek yeah. politics right now. Um, yeah. So what are the differences between Spain and Greece? They've both had fascist, fascist dictatorships okay. until very recently, right? Okay. Let me let me answer this in a different way. Mm. One thing that nobody gives credit to Syriza, and Syriza has done, okay, we know that we were defeated, austerity, neoliberalism, and so on, is that in Greece, I think because we didn't have we we had a left wing government, you didn't see the rise of uh, Golden Dawn even further, right. especially around the issue of the refugee crisis. Mm. Because remember, the refugee crisis that um, we had. Mm. We are talking about over a hundred thousand 
800,000 people passing from Greece. There are about 55,000 people right now, refugees in Greece. Mm-hmm. And this could very easily have tipped towards the other side. But this is what made the difference, that you have a discourse there. Mm-hmm. And this comes out from even the mainstream media, although they don't uh, like Syriza, that no, this is not the enemy. So I think even there, you managed to, to prevent something. I don't want to overemphasize it, because then you had this deal that I'm totally against. Right. And uh, But this stopped the flows. If it was going on, I don't know what mm. would have happened. I mean, happened. Greece last year, a million people entered I read, or is that incorrect? I mean, it's pretty... Yeah, okay. I mean, it's just amazing. They didn't stay. I mean, they passed yeah, and through this the is a country of, what, 12 million people? How many people? 10, 12, something yeah, I mean, like just, that. Yeah. <laughs> imagine 6 million people passing through Britain in one year. I mean... The political fallout be immense. So you see, even these small things, it does make a mm. difference that you have nobody in the government coming out saying, "Oh, it's a refugees' fault. We don't want them there." And That's granted, but how come you mm-hmm. see the rise of the AfD, Alternative for Deutschland in Germany, mm-hmm. fascist almost won, uh, Freedom Party candidate almost won in Austria the presidential race a couple of weeks ago. UKIP over here, Front National, why is Spain seemingly, despite an economic recession just as bad as anywhere else, uh, the exception? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I will agree with what Michael said, but I wouldn't be able to give a definite answer. Mm. I mean, it's, it's almost a miracle, right? You don't get 45% youth unemployment without the emergence of the far right. That's not how things work. They have some, but there's been literally zero growth. Mm. If anything, negative, like they've gone down, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, but you have the streets. The streets, as you said, they were occupied by people of the movements, and I think this this stops that. Yeah, I, I mean, I did a bit of research on this yesterday and asked Facebook. Tell us. Facebook told me um, the PP is quite capable of absorbing some of the far right. Um, mm-hmm. Although, I mean, so are most. All centre-right parties All centre-right are. parties yeah, are, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I didn't find that that satisfying. Um, something about the social movements that erupted, La Pa, again, the mm. anti-evictions movement, had was many of the participants were migrants, especially Latin American migrants, because they were everyone got a mortgage in the mm. in the ten years preceding the crisis, and then obviously the people who were getting evicted were the people who this were most, the most equivalent precarious. Of subprime, basically, right? The equivalent of subprime, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that meant that migrants were centred in in popular movements in Spain, but again that. That, to me, sounded a bit like Solidarity for All in Greece, right? I mean, in Kevin Avenden's book, he makes it seem like migrants were a big part of that popular movement Yeah, although, although I think all these movements, sometimes, again, we make parallels, but in Spain, probably, they were much more developed, much more d- different. I think there is a difference there. Or maybe you just have rosier tinted glasses when you look at it. Yeah, but, yeah, I think there, <laughs> there is something always better on the other side, yeah. We're going to make some conclusions in a minute, but I, want, I just want to put it to you, Michael, that... Look, you've got a country, like I said, 20% unemployment, 45% youth unemployment. Um, huge, sort of, very complex, but clearly an overwhelming change in the in the, in the ethnic uh, makeup of the country, 14% of the country. Uh, That's another point, actually, that, that came up, was that the where people are coming from. So people are coming from Latin America and Romania, which are quite culturally similar countries. Sure. The Latin Americans speak Spanish. But, nonetheless, you've got... All that stuff. And you've got a country which was fascist until 1975, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Franco was a great exception of all these European dictators because he died in his bed. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's the reason why... Maybe because Spain never had a reckoning with its fascist past, right? People go, oh, Spain hasn't done what Germany did. It hasn't yeah. done what Italy did. There wasn't like a reckoning with fascism. And maybe that was for the best. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that would be controversial on... Because the left in Spain has been for decades saying, let's we need a reckoning with fascism. We need to 
prosecute these mm. people. I've, which which hasn't done. They had a, a policy of forgetting. They had a, an amnesty law which made it illegal to um, try anyone for a crime, uh, which was carried out under the di dictatorship, which seems completely outrageous. Well, because one of the one of the big variables with Nazism. Sorry, I just want to quickly say, yeah, yeah. Is, as we all know, a sense of historic injustice right after the First World yeah. War and betrayal, and yeah. the Spanish left yeah, I think effectively never did that. Well, it's also it's difficult for for fascists in Spain to have a sense of victimhood. I mean, they, they had the country for 40 years. Yeah. It had very slow growth. It's very difficult to call that the golden age. Yeah. Franco died. There was a peaceful transition. Yeah, obviously, with it's, it's come with a lot of baggage. Like, Spain's incredibly corrupt. They didn't do a reckoning, and that's obviously had many negatives, not least justice for the families and et cetera, things course, like that. Yeah. But there isn't the ability of the far right to claim historical injustice, to say we've been... We've been unjustly discriminated against, defeated, and we want to return Spain to the golden age. Mm. It's just, it's not very convincing, even amongst uh, extreme minorities. I mean, I just find it remarkable, because this was also a colonial power. You know, it was a serious colonial power. It was arguably the first colonial, sort of global colonial power, along with Portugal, clearly. And yeah, it's just totally absent. And you compare it to Britain. I mean, it could not be more distinct. We've got a few minutes left. I guess we'll just sum up. Three minutes left. Start with you, Marina. Uh, what are your hopes with what happens to Podemos and how, how much would it change if Podemos form a government in Europe? Or does it not change anything at all? No, I, th I think it will change quite a lot, a lot of things. And that's what I was uh, talking about before, that for me, that I want to stay in the EU, but I want to reform the EU. I depend very much on having the change of governments in uh, uh, countries like Spain as well, and start forming a different, different bloc within the EU, which will resist, which will try to go against austerity and overthrow the neoliberal powers that they're dominating there. I'm not saying it in a very simplistic way that it is going to happen the next day after possibly there is a Podemos government, but I see a future and a hope in this um, type of change. So for me, it is quite important, not only because of uh, Spain, but because in my mind I have this transnational challenge of power in neoliberalism, which I think it's the only one possible as well. And that's why I'm still uh, campaigning for Remain and for another um, Europe, which you joined. Thank you very much again. <laughs> Michael. Um, what was the question again? I got distracted by Europe. <laughs> Um, uh, our, our hopes for Podemos. What does it change fundamentally? What does it well, change? Right? I think, in a way, I mean, I think Podemos have been incredibly impressive. I think the way they have shifted discourse in Spain has been, they've, they've done it just incredibly well, and that has limited the populist right, I think. At the same time, if they were in government, I would have concerns. I mean, I want them to be in government, but there isn't, there aren't many structures to hold the leadership of Podemos to account. It really is a party run by Pablo Iglesias and his friends to quite a large degree. So I think it could be, yeah, there's, there's quite a large chance of people being like, oh, Pablo Iglesias, he sold out on the streets. I don't know. They need to really pay attention to leveraging mm. social mobilisation. I hope they do. On that note, as I've said, we will be covering the Spanish election. It's next Sunday for Navarra Media. We'll be doing video contents and podcasts too. My thanks again to Marina Prantulis, Michael Walker. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you. My name is Aaron Mastanis, Navarra FM, here on Resonance 104.4 FM. We'll see you same time, same place next week.
Navara FM is brought to you by Navara Media. To find out more about our work, head to navaramedia.com and wire.navaramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media, media for a different